don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. All right, guys, welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. Um, we are going to hit a really fun one today. Uh, I actually just noticed this morning that um, uh, yesterday's intro was turned way down when I started editing this one. Um, so I apologize for that. I was wondering why my audio uh, adjustments were not working yesterday, so I found out where they had gone. Um, but uh, today we will be hitting one by Fernando Ulrich, uh, and it's on the concept of uh, it's one that we I see all the time, and I addressed it last week. If you uh, want to hear Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, kind of discuss the concept in full, the yield from money held is the uh, episode that I'm referring to. I think that's 122. Um, but it's this one is hitting that concept kind of from a different angle, um, and uh, uh, just that. Uh, medium of exchange and unit of account are consequences of a good store of value um, and that there is a natural progression and his explanation and argument as to why that that progression starts with a store of value um, but I won't I don't want to lead uh, his article too much uh, and let's just go ahead and jump into it and again this is by Fernando Ulrich and it is titled why money has value and spending bitcoin is senseless the title of this article is not clickbait well kind of perhaps a more precise title is why using bitcoin as a medium of exchange now is senseless but if we manage to make it a good store of value then it will naturally be used as a medium of exchange in the future this is the first part of a five-part series. At present, it is misguided to focus on the act of spending Bitcoin. Instead, we must strive to encourage people to earn Bitcoin and be paid in Bitcoin. These are just the opposite sides of the same coin, and it may seem I am playing with semantics. However, I contend that the economic and technical consequences of stressing one viewpoint to spend over the other to earn are profound and irreconcilable. The scalability controversy surrounding Bitcoin has given rise to many subordinate and parallel discussions, which is precisely how the topic of the present article emerged. Since the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, the debate has intensified. Although each faction now works on separate blockchains, crypto Twitter remains replete with tweets and threads from both sides. Bitcoin Cash, or BCH proponents, argue Bitcoin is electronic cash and must be used and spent. Money is defined as a commonly accepted medium of exchange. Thus, if a cryptocurrency aims to be money, it must be used in exchange. So states their rationale. First, it is indisputable that money's essential function is being a medium of exchange. But as argued below, there exist evolutionary steps following a logical path a good or service must traverse 
to be used for indirect exchange. By ignoring this dynamic, BCHers fall prey to using language and economic reasoning echoing more of Keynes than Mises. They fail to see it is only a matter of when Bitcoin shall be used as a medium of exchange than if it should be used as such. Second, the understanding of Bitcoin primarily as a, quote, good to be spent leads to an entirely different vision for its protocol development, which, by the way, could not be more pronounced when we contrast Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin ABC. So from a technological perspective, BCHers fail to see it is only a matter of how Bitcoin shall be used as a medium of exchange than if it should be used as such. This is the first article of a five-part series in which the case for Bitcoin as a store of value first, medium of exchange later, will be made. In this first installment, the foundation is laid. Economics. Economic theory and money. Mainstream economists tend to either define money very broadly or refrain from defining it at all. Greg Mankiw, whose economics textbook is the standard at universities across the globe, describes money as, quote, the stock of assets that can be readily used to make transactions, end quote. In no order or degree of importance, as is the usual practice among economists, the authors lists the functions of money as medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account. Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, on the other hand, argues money's defining function is that of being a medium of exchange. Whereas every other commonly cited function, namely store of value and unit of account, Mises uses common denominator and Karl Menger's phrase price index, are secondary and can be traced back to the term medium of exchange. Money's essence is being traded in exchange for that which one wishes to consume. This generalization is undeniable. Nevertheless, for something to become money, or a universally accepted medium of exchange, it must first follow evolutionary stages. A good is initially recognized and hoarded as a store of value for deferred exchanges. Then because of its hoarding, it's used as a medium of exchange through a process in which other individuals also recognize its utility and wish to hoard the items for future exchange. Once a good becomes widely accepted and used as a store of value and medium of exchange, ratios of exchanges tend to be priced in terms of the good. In other words, it is employed as the common denominator in the market, ultimately growing into a unit of account. Certainly, store of value and medium of exchange reinforce each other until the point at which a good becomes highly liquid, or the most liquid, which enables it to become a unit of account. But if a good is not recognized as an adequate store of value or has little to no prospects of ever becoming one, its chances of being accepted in exchange are dim. This is why store of value tends to prevail over medium of exchange at the dawn of a good's monetization. How the predominance of each function differs as a commodity gains liquidity may be argued. First comes the store of value, second the medium of exchange, and third the unit of account. While medium of exchange is the most important function of moneyness, 
unit of account is the defining mark for understanding what things we can call money. While a good is not employed as a unit of account, but solely as a store of value and medium of exchange, it can be analyzed in terms of its moneyness, or in other words, its liquidity, or Manger's saleability. Colloquially, we will just call it money. From a scientific approach, if a good is not a unit of account, then it should not be called money. As this is a digression from the point of this article, the discussion on the vagueness of the word money will be left for another time. Through the passage of time and increased liquidity, the function of store of value might lose weight on everyone's demand for cash balance. So as the economy develops and division of labor intensifies, the proportion of ready cash for overall investments diminishes as one can better anticipate its future in and outflows of money. Now, Manger and Mises did not dwell upon the functions of money, nor did they attempt to arrange each in a temporal ordering. For Mises, money's essential role is facilitating indirect exchange, and everything else that may be theorized about monetary phenomena is inextricably linked to media of exchange. Their indifference to any temporal ranking of functions may be explained by the fact that, during their times, money was already established. Gold and silver were the primary commodity monies with, usually, redeemable paper currencies. Money had emerged and was chosen by the market, so it was no longer a concern to conjecture how a new good could arise to be adopted as a common medium of exchange. But since Nakamoto's invention, economists return to theorizing about money and how it comes into existence. If Bitcoin does become money, then what we are witnessing today is precisely the birth of money, which, by the way, was the title of my first article covering Bitcoin in Portuguese. The monetization of a good, be it seashells, salt, copper, gold, or irredeemable paper currency, occurs over an extended period, such as decades or perhaps centuries. If we are now amid an inflection point of monetary history, then it is paramount we understand what factors are relevant and how matters can play out. Store of value takes precedence. Various assets that can be used to store value over time would be considered mediocre media of exchange, for example, real estate. For goods aspiring to be money, though, the ability to transfer the respective good in an exchange increases its usefulness as a store of value. In this sense, store of value and medium of exchange are interwoven in more ways than economists like to admit. In practice, then, there is no sharp distinction between the functions of store of value and medium of exchange when we examine monetary phenomena. This makes it essential to understand the nuances of the evolutionary process through which a good becomes money. A commodity may be employed as a medium of exchange despite being a relatively poor store of value. History is full of examples where commodities were widely used as media of exchange, though they performed poorly in terms of value preservation, either being of perishable or having a less scarce supply. To use Manger's term, some commodities are more, quote, fit for preservation than others. Even for those commodities historically adopted and subsequently discarded as a medium of exchange, it was a precondition to preserve some value through time and space, at least for the period during which the goods were hoarded. 
As Mises noted in The Theory of Money and Credit, quote, Menger has pointed out that the special suitability of goods for hoarding and their consequent widespread employment for this purpose has been one of the most important causes of their increased marketability and therefore of their qualification as media of exchange, end quote. Emphasis is mine. So according to Mises and Menger, hoarding does cause a good to be used as a medium of exchange, among other reasons. In this sense, if a commodity is incapable of minimally performing the monetary function of storing value, then this limitation would likely prevent it from being used in exchange, provided there existed no law or edict mandating otherwise. Furthermore, a commodity may withstand the test of time by being merely a reasonable store of value and not a medium of exchange, for technical or political reasons, which is covered below. Gold in modern times is a prime example. Several characteristics enhance a commodity's liquidity in the marketplace, such as transportability, divisibility, and recognizability. However, ceteris paribus, men prefer a commodity that better preserves value over time and space than those that do not. Both Menger and Mises approached the emergence of money and indirect exchange from a barter perspective. A medium of exchange is an intermediate commodity that brings the economizing individual closer to his final goal, his desired commodity. It solves the double coincidence of wants. This intermediate commodity may be demanded for direct use in consumption. To Mises, money's value can be traced back to when it had no monetary utility, and it was just another commodity being acquired for consumption. This is the thrust of Mises' famous regression theorem. Nick Zabo, on the other hand, addressed the theory of money using extensive archaeological evidence that were not yet available during Manger's lifespan. In Shelling Out, The Origins of Money, he identified artifacts historically used to preserve and transfer wealth within ancient tribes. These objects required, quote, unforgeable costliness in their manufacturing, were collected and valued by primitive societies and were used for transferring wealth, voluntarily or coerced, for inheritance, tributes to conquerors, reparations, or even paying the price of a bride in marriage. Collectibles, the term coined by Zabo, can be considered a proto-money representing rare or scarce goods used to store wealth and as a medium of wealth transfer. To Zabo, Menger's theory, quote, as an actual description of the origins of money is almost surely wrong, or alternatively, it is even more right than he could have known. This is because money, in the form of collectibles such as shells, predated low transaction cost commodity markets by tens of thousands of years, end quote. Rather than offering conflicting theories, Zabo complements Manger's writings, suggesting that even goods serving no useful purpose or apparent utility can display desired qualities as money. Therefore, through a careful reading of Manger's and Mises' monetary writings, Zabo's theory on the origins of money and collectibles, the store of value function, can be considered predominant in the initial stages of a commodity's monetization. 
What gives money value? Another angle which proponents of BCH attempt to make their case is that money must be used in exchange to have value and must be spent. Utility, according to BCHers, is evidenced in the act of spending. This is where a more nuanced examination of money's source of value is pertinent. Money's essential function is indeed being used in exchange, but why does money have value in the first place? Because it has purchasing power. Where does its purchasing power come from? The demand for and supply of money. Its purchasing power originates from the demand to hold money and the demand to hold cash balances. Money's utility lies in its ability to purchase goods and services, which is derived from individuals' demand to hold cash balances. Many economists mischaracterize the holding of money as, quote, idle hoards, as if hoarding was any different from holding for its own sake. As Mises put it, quote, Hoarding money is nothing but the custom of holding a greater stock of it than is usual with other economic agents, at other times or in other places. The hoarded sums of money do not lie idle, whether they are regarded from the social or from the individual point of view. They serve to satisfy a demand for money just as much as any other money does." End quote. Along the same lines, Murray Rothbard, in Man, Economy, and State, added, quote, that money in one's cash balance is performing a service demonstrates the fallacy and the distinction that some writers make between circulating money and money in idle hoards. In the first place, all money is always in someone's cash balance. It is never, quote, moving in some mysterious circulation, end quote. If money were to be spent as soon as received in exchange, it would have no market or very little price. As Rothbard stated, quote, If no one is willing to keep a cash balance longer than instantaneously, there will be no money held and no use for a money stock. Money, in short, would either be useless or very nearly so in the world of certainty, end quote. The graveyard of cryptocurrencies is full of projects conceived with rules incentivizing users to spend their coins. Idealized in 2011, Frycoin attempted to introduce Demurrage as a protocol specification to convince users to circulate coins by, quote, using them and provide, quote, stable long-term value. In other words, hoarding was discouraged and spending encouraged. Based on the Freigelt idea of German economist Silvio Gesell, quote, Demurrage forces Freicoins to circulate at deliberately high rates. Separation of money's roles as store of value and medium of exchange allows money to flow when it is needed, in good times and bad. Our careful selection of governing parameters creates a currency whose value is stable with neither price inflation nor deflation. The properties of Bitcoin make it analogous to precious commodities like gold or silver, and it will always function as a useful store of value. Frycoin, on the other hand, is meant to be used as a medium of exchange only, kept on hand just long enough to provide a cash flow buffer." End quote. This approach underlies the theory, but humans have a way of proving economists' theories wrong. 
If users were disincentivized to hold fry coins, then why would anyone accept them in the first place? BCHers may not appreciate this inconsistency and would certainly dispute the following claim, for, in a sense, they have become present-day fry coiners. All right, and there we have it. That is Fernando Ulrich's uh, first part of a five-part series. And like I said, I may tackle the rest of his uh, series. I don't think he has... Let me check. I didn't even actually check his Medium page to see. Okay, never mind. I take that back. It looks like... Yeah, it looks like all five of the article... Uh, parts of the article is out. The last one came out on August 3rd. He released them basically one day apart. Um, so... Uh, okay, yeah, we, we may, I'll uh, jump into some of those other articles and read them and see if I want to continue forward with this one, but I thought this one was a interesting point, and it's something that I can't really get away from is the fact that it really does seem to be a very common Bitcoin Cash argument that this has to be spent now, and it's in it's very, very liking to the Frycoin Keynesian concept of spending money is the way to make it useful and hoarding money is bad, which obviously I've hit uh, just last week in a number of different ways as to why I think that is uh, at its core a, a serious fallacy. It's just flatly wrong. Um, <clears throat> so um, uh, the... The, I think the best way to sum up this entire argument is the last paragraph. This approach underlies the theory, but humans have a way of proving economists' theories wrong. If users were disincentivized to hold fry coins, then why would anyone accept them in the first place? There are two parties to every transaction. There is someone who wants the coins and someone who is getting rid of the coins. If you don't have anybody who wants the coins and they are scared of holding it over any length of time, then it's a bad money. That is the one thing that makes money a different asset from everything around it, is that it's a store of value and a medium of exchange. And like he said, I don't think you can have the medium of exchange without the store of value first. It just doesn't work. If if everyone is not okay with accepting it and holding it in place of the perishable assets or the perishable commodities and um, uh, the assets or whatever it is that they were holding in place of the money, if the money does not keep its value, then there is absolutely no reason to use it as a medium of exchange. You're going to be rushing to get rid of it as quick as you possibly can, which will lower its value. Everyone, It will be a race to get rid of your money as quickly as possible. That does not create a stable value, and I see no logical reasoning why it should. Um, and if we're talking about the creation of money, the money naturally coming into being, how on earth would anybody use something as a medium of exchange if it's not already valued on its face, like already valued in and of itself? I think what we're looking at is an incredibly long process of something becoming money. I think Bitcoin has the 
elements that make it a good money. It has the characteristics of a good money. But in the context of whether it's a unit of account or a medium of exchange, it is neither of those things. And until it is neither of those things yet, and until it has a highly liquid, mature, and adopted market, it can't be either of those things. It can probably be a medium of exchange somewhere along the growth stage, but it will be a bad unit of account until we reach full adoption or a stable level of adoption in its market. Um, in the same way that um, uh, oil, before we have the engine and the cars and anything to use it, oil is still a great fuel, but it's not being used as a fuel because we don't have any of the infrastructure or the market that makes it possible to utilize it for that purpose. A stable adoption market is the only way something can be a stable form of measurement. In the same way, if nobody else is using inches, there's no reason to measure your house in inches. So to put it simply, I think it's a very logically causal relationship that it has to be adopted first and held for uh, uh, for the sake of seeing its value as a money in the future or its ability to secure a contract and secure ownership um, outside of the outside of any state or financial third party, um, that it has to be that store of value first, and only after widespread adoption and infrastructure and services and uh, 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 payment layers and the new technology coming in to expand the uses of this thing, only then can it be used as a unit of account when we don't have literally millions of people dumping into the economy in a period of a couple of months because it's just got no exposure to the vast majority of the people who are prospective users of this technology. It's an incredibly scarce asset. Its price will not be stable until it's the number of people using it is stable. Um, so, uh, Anyway, that's, that's probably as far as I need to go into it. He kind of did a good job of explaining his point, and uh, apparently he has all five of these articles out, so I will go ahead and read the next couple of these articles here, um, and we'll see if we want to jump back into these. I may uh, space these out a little bit if I do cover all five, um, but please, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go applaud the article on Medium. Again, that was by Fernando Ulrich, um, and uh, of course, I will link to it in the show notes and on the Twitter page, um, so go check him out and follow him on Medium and Twitter, and uh, of course, follow me as well at The Crypto Economy on Medium and Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and give me a uh, review if you're liking the show, uh, and feel free to comment on any of the Twitter posts or... Um, Send me a message if you have any comments or questions about the podcast or some articles or, you know, recommending this, that, or the other. Uh, feel free. I am totally open to that. I had a couple of guys point out um, Stopping the Crips' uh, newest article, which uh, obviously I read yesterday, um, and I appreciate that. It's great to be given content that you guys want to hear. So let me know, and I'll just reach out to whoever wrote it and make sure that they're okay with me write, uh, reading it on the podcast, and we'll jump into it. Uh, but yeah, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. 
Um, and uh, uh, share it with all of your friends in the crypto economy. Anybody who wants to learn about the real core of all this stuff, the philosophy, the technology, its history, everything, that is what I'm here for. So um, check that out. And if you would like to donate or support the show, um, a huge thank you to Jesse Lawler and uh, a bunch of the people who have donated in the past. It's a huge help. Thank you so much. Um, this thing does take a crap ton of my time and energy, um, but I want to keep doing it. Um, so if you would like to donate um, to the podcast, uh, I will have a donation address, as always, in the show notes and the Twitter post. And of course, if you have not gotten your Trezor hardware wallet yet, don't be a fool. Keep your crypto in a hardware wallet. Trezor is my highest recommendation um, I love the device, use it all the time, and you can secure your Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin, all the stuff, and tons of ERC-20 tokens. The list is extremely long now, and uh, uh, if you get it through my affiliate link uh, in those same places, show notes and Twitter, you will send a couple of bucks my way at no extra cost to you. So, thank you guys. I will catch you all tomorrow back for another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Until then, take it easy, guys. Mm-hmm.